Welcome to the Faith Element Podcast for the November 5, 2023 session, focusing on Micah chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, Averting Our Eyes. I'm David Cassidy. I'm Nikki Hardiman. I'm David Adams. And I'm Daniel Glaze. This uh, session today is for November 5, which means we are actually not far from the end of the year. <laughs> oh my I mean, God. I know it's crazy. The thing has just flown by. It really has. Wow. So we're all about to get consumed by Thanksgiving and Advent and Christmas, and it, which is all wonderful. But for those of you who are leading ministries at local congregations, it's also a time where we begin thinking about the next year. And January, February, are going to be right around the corner. <laughs> and for some congregations, it's a really good time to be thinking about how you are communicating yourself to your community, how you're connecting. And part of that connection is branding. What does your logo look like? Does it look like something that was developed in the 1950s? Maybe it was. Or does it look like something that is more current, that connects with your current identity and approach to ministry in your community? Faith Lab can help you develop a branding strategy and a logo that helps communicate and underscore and share your identity. And think about it, your logo shows up on everything you produce, or it should, whether it are brochures or bulletins, flyers, posters, obviously your website, your email newsletter. Those are all places where your image uh, is carried forward. What a wonderful way to put some energy and intentionality into how that is shared. When you do logo and branding work with Faith Lab, you don't just get a new logo, but you get a branding guide to go with it. So we're going to help you with here are the list of fonts that you can use in your publications to help them have a cohesive look and feel. We're going to give you a selection of colors so that whether you're doing PMS colors or web hex colors or whatever you're producing your content with, we're going to give you the codes and the colors palette from which to choose so that all of your publications will have a similar look and feel, both from the font perspective, the color perspective, the logo and design. It's a wonderful way to show that your congregation is as professional in its appearance as it is in the ministries that it provides. I hope you'll reach out to Faith Lab and let us know if we can help you with your branding needs. The new year is a wonderful time to give that a, a shot. Give us a call or check us out online at faithlab.com. We have an interesting text today out of Micah, and <laughs> it's probably not the easiest text as usual. <laughs> <laughs> to to grapple with. And so we bring in our difficult text expert, Daniel Glaze, to help Indeed. us get started. I'm going to get that printed on my business card. You really should. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give it a whirl. Before we begin, we need to admit something right off the bat. Micah's words in chapter three are graphic, particularly the first four verses. He paints quite the word picture when describing the injustices committed within his context, the 8th century BCE. Perhaps the graphic language here is why the lectionary usually photoshops out verses 1 through 4. Listen, you heads of Jacob, rulers of the house of Israel, 
You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin off my people and the flesh off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people, break their bones into pieces, and chop them up like meat in a kettle, like flesh in a cauldron. Such language turns your stomach, no doubt about it. And I don't know about you, but my first inclination is to skip over those verses too, just like the lectionary does. I want to avert my eyes, just like when the evening news is overwhelming and we turn over to Wheel of Fortune. But if we were to do, that would be a mistake. And not because we're some sort of masochists who love pain, but because in the face of violence, of hurt, of abuse, of oppression, we must not avert our eyes. We must not walk away. We must not remain neutral. I'm, I am reminded of what the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu once said. If you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. He goes on to say, if an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse and you say that you are neutral, the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. To turn away, to avert our eyes, to ignore the graphic nature of this passage, and not to acknowledge by reading and hearing the pain of injustice, we just might be contributing to the pain with the sin of silence, the sin of indifference. Let's take a closer look. I've talked about verses 1 through 4. Verses 5 through 12 may be split into two sections. The first section, verses 5 through 8, contains severe words of judgment against those prophets who seem to prefer the wealthy over the poor. Micah is especially harsh toward those prophets who side with those who can stuff a little cash in their pockets and then rail against those who cannot. In essence, Micah speaks a word of caution against those who stand idly by while the elephant is standing upon the tail of the mouse. We cannot avert our eyes in the face of injustice or stand in that mushy middle with our hands over our eyes. We cannot say, I didn't cause the hurt, so I'm not responsible for it either. If we remain silent, we are responsible, and Micah is clear on this. The second section is verses 9 through 12. Here Micah speak, seems to speak to the elephants themselves. Those who by their wealth and power are actively oppressing the poor and marginalized. This reminds me of those politicians who took hundreds of thousands, some millions of dollars in PPP loans during the height of the pandemic to fund their own personal businesses. Loans which they did not have to repay and which many of them didn't need in the first place. And these politicians had the nerve to look us square in the face and tell us we don't deserve $10,000 in student loan forgiveness. An elephant standing on the tail or neck of the mouse. To continue Archbishop Tutu's metaphor, Micah calls his hearers out of their neutrality and into action. Micah's own action is to raise his voice, to speak out against those who would bring hurt and harm to the innocent. For Micah, silence in the face of oppression is not an option. Averting our eyes will not be allowed. And I like to think that I would be standing right behind Micah 
cheering him on as he railed against the rich and powerful. But before you join me on that high horse, believing that Micah is really letting them have it, perhaps Micah is speaking to all of us. As Old Testament scholar Frank Geiser put it, Micah was not a Republican, though he based his arguments firmly in Israel's conservative traditions. Nor was he a Democrat, though he liberally denounced injustice to the downtrodden. Indeed, Micah knew nothing of democratic government or global economics. The preacher of Micah's text is called not to be partisan, but to proclaim to all, in language as direct as this text, that God will not put up with injustice to the poor and self-satisfied arrogance of the wealthy and the powerful. It is not enough, Micah says, to be concerned with right theology and worship. We must also be concerned with seeking to build a just community, one that takes care of all. Maybe this is what caused Micah to preach just three chapters later. He has told you, mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And that's a little background on our text for today. Daniel, thank you for that introduction. And I especially appreciated how you took the risk of <laughs> reminding us that Micah was not uh, a party to any of the political parties or movements that we know. Mm. Because I think that's important because it's so easy for us to read Scripture through partisan lenses. We're almost trained to do it. And I worry sometimes that 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 ability to so easily slot a paragraph into, well, that's left, that's right, that's right, that's red, or that's blue. We stop listening when we do that. And knowing that God is above and beyond our petty politics maybe is a, a good reminder that helps us to hear texts like this one from Micah today. So thanks for going there and reminding us. Uh, maybe we can hear a little better that way. Thanks. I, I appreciate your saying that because we often say, gosh, let's not get political. Jesus was political, but he was not partisan. Yes. And there's a huge difference there. Mm -hmm. My father used to say, Jesus isn't a Republican or a Democrat. He's both and neither. We, we need to be very careful about putting our human constructs on divine things. It's tough not to just inject yourself into the political situation of their time. I mean, Micah's doing a lot of saying, I told you this was going to happen. You brought this on yourselves. You didn't attend to the things God wanted you to attend to. This is all your fault. And we look at the working of politics as Micah lays it out pretty plainly, and we realize that this is there's a timeless element to this. You know, human beings treat each other this way and always have. And they continue to do so, even though we've been told time and again not to. So to go back and see Micah jump into the political fight of his day and say what matters here is these timeless values, that's got a lesson for us in there someplace. Is there a way for us to look beyond what's happening in our day and talk about the timeless things? I think we'd get a lot farther if we could. David, that's interesting. As you said that, it I went right back to Cain and Abel, the first sin in the world is violence, not first sin, the first after the fall 
the first thing that we see happen is violence, brother against brother. And I think that is, and I don't mean to this, I'm not saying this as a pessimist or, or anything like that, but there is, there is a sense of violence in our nature. It doesn't mean that we have to give into it, but it's real. Two-year-olds, when they don't get their way, they bite, right? It's trying to affect something through hurting another. And I think we strive to deny that about ourselves. And maybe that's part of the reason we look away, Daniel. Maybe part of the reason we avert our eyes is because of the fear that we may see ourselves in what we are looking at. That we're not looking into a window, but a mirror. Yeah. And maybe both. I think it, I think it could be both, Mm -hmm. but for sure, if we, if the minute we think that we cannot be on the side of the oppressor is the moment we will become the oppressor and the one who causes harm. And you brought this up, Nikki, and immediately I thought this too, when you were talking about the first Thing that goes all the way back to Cain and Abel, because I've always thought of it. Okay, the first real sin and separation in that narrative was not the act of violence; it was the feelings that someone had that I want what that other person has, or that other person is right different from me, and therefore I have a right to do this violence to them, or I can be driven to that because we still struggle with that penchant for violence where. Absolutely. I own that property. It belongs to me. I should be there. I have these rights. So I'm going to go ahead and ultimately it leads to violence. Stand my ground. Yep. Yeah. This is also one of those passages where I can't help but be reminded of my own tendency to read things as an individual. And then when I read something Mm -hmm. that has a collective sense like this text, it feels funny, right? Because if you read verse 9 through 12, you've got this accusations, those who abhor justice and pervert all equity, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with wrong. Rulers give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets give oracles for money and on. And then we end with, therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. And the individualist in me wants to go, I didn't do that. I didn't sell out for this. I didn't take money for that. I wasn't. But the system in which they participated was what God brought judgment across upon that culture that sustained that system. And I think we do ourselves harm when we fail to notice how in the scriptures, it's so clear God is paying attention, not just to our individual actions, but our actions collectively as a culture. And it matters. Yeah, I I keep going back to this story all the time, but there's a time where you have youth groups out and you're doing things and they leave a big mess because youth groups leave messes after they eat. And I always make the lecture, the group that comes in here tomorrow is not going to say, oh, Bob didn't clean up after himself. They're going to say that group did left a messy place because mm-hmm. it's not the individuals. It's about the group. And we right. have a hard time understanding that. It's so much easier to say, I personally, I'm clean. I don't know about the rest of them. 
I, I think we've also seen examples in present culture about this. With the rise of the Me Too movement, there's lots of conversation about men and how dangerous men are to women. And certainly, I imagine mo- men who I love and care about probably thought the same thing I do. I respect women. I don't treat women bad. Why would they be scared of me when I'm walking behind them at night? And somebody said in that conversation, do you always keep the safety on your gun? Yeah, absolutely. We keep the safety on our gun. Why? Because that's just good practice. That's good safety practice. You treat every gun like it's a loaded gun. And so that helped me put into perspective what this group thing is. Women will treat every man like they're a loaded gun. Even if I don't do these things in particular, because I benefit from a system that is built on people doing these things, I am a part of it. It's not just that you benefit from the system. It's that we have the opportunity to change the systems. And that's where the averting our eyes part of this, I think, comes to play. Is it so easy for us to go, it's not me, and then I turn my eyes away, rather than do we have a sense of responsibility and calling to help make it better, to change the system? I look at verses 5 through 8 because that has such a modern contextual issue there that lays out. And I guess it, maybe it's my church, maybe it's others. We we talk about this a lot that we have a sense that people have been leaving Christianity and our faith because it's not functional. It's not doing what God wants it to do. It's it's gone off on other paths. And a lot of people, when they look at the church that they don't go to anymore or the faith they don't have anymore, they're going to say things like what Mike is saying right here. You, you led people astray. You said this is what's going to happen when we gave you something, but we didn't give you anything. And when you get that nice Maserati or the yacht or whatever, then I have nothing to do to help you. you you're on your own. Therefore, God's away from you. There's going to be no vision. It's going to be dark for you. You've led people away from God. You've led people away from faith. Or you have allowed faith basically to be a matter of what do I get out of that as your leader in faith? And and that is so much like what we see happening now when we're talking about how faith in our country and others is in the decline. And you know, there are all kinds of surveys showing this. But I think that Mike is onto something here when he's saying, hey, this is what happens when people make basically serving people's faith needs about themselves and not about the people who are being served. I was going to say there there's another kind of a I don't even want to say soft oppression, but it's an oppression that we often don't recognize. It's, and, and I'm, I'm looking at those same verses. The, those who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against those who put nothing in their mouths. When someone makes it, when someone cl- climbs a couple rungs on the ladder, it's so easy to forget those who are still on the ground. It, it's also... There's another kind of oppression because maybe we had to struggle to get somewhere we think everybody else does. And so we we glorify that struggle and we, rather than helping others, hel- helping to create more power, more achievement, we want to, hey, I had to work for this. I got here on my own merits, which we probably didn't, but we'll lay that aside. <laughs> then Then what's mine is mine. And rarely is that how any of this works. 
Never is that how any of this works. Yeah, being struggling to achieve something is very different from trying to stand up from the foot on your back to just get what you need. Mm -hmm. Those are two very different things. And a lot of times in what you're talking about, they're equated. So what is the antidote? What is What are the practical antidotes to what's happening in this passage for us today? It'd be nice to have some micas. I just don't want to be one of them. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> That's a hard job. It really is. <laughs> and I really well, think you had to have a few screws loose to be a prophet. <laughs> my, uh, of course. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the antidotes is that God is not only concerned with our songs of praise and our prayers from 11 a.m. to 12 noon on Sunday morning. Yeah. 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 In fact, let's put a finer point on it. If we are not engaged in work of justice, God is not listening. And that's not me saying that. That's what the scripture, that's scripture that's, that's saying. What that. said. That's what Micah said. Yeah. That if we are not, let's put it positively, for our faith to be real, for our worship to be vibrant, for our church to be relevant, we need to be engaged in justice in our own cities and towns and in this world. We need to care. And there are those for whom, if we don't advocate for them, their voices will not be heard, their situation right. will not be highlighted, and change will be further away. Another famous quote about not averting our eyes or the danger of averting our eyes, as we have been discussing today, is the, the Holocaust survivor and author Elie Wiesel, who wrote the famous work Night. And he says it this way. He says, we must take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. Sometimes we must interfere. When human lives are endangered, when human dignity is in jeopardy, national borders and sensitivities become irrelevant. Wherever men and women are persecuted because of their race, religion, or political views, that place must, at that moment, become the center of the universe. The call to faith, the call to action, it's a real one. And as hard as this passage from Micah is to read and truly try to grapple with, it does call us to a world that can be better, to a way of living together that can be more positive and fairer and healthier and more equitable. And it reminds us, as we have heard over and over from the scriptures, that God's values are pretty clear, if we will pay attention, that God cares about God's creation, including all of us, and that our lives and the lives of all of those other persons around us are valuable and worthy to God. God just hopes for us to find the way, the wisdom, the path to live together in peace and joy and celebrate all that God has given us. Thank you all for this good conversation on this difficult text. Thank you. Thank you. 
Learn more about our Faith Element Bible Study curriculum at faithelement.net. Faith Element is a service of Faith Lab.